through the book of Galatians, and we've come towards the last uh, few verses uh, of Galatians. We've finished the series, and it's been a great joy going through it, and I've got to confess to you, there's a part of me that wishes we'd spend more time on it. Uh, that's just my flesh, because I feel like we're just scratching the surface of this wonderful, glorious uh, book, because God's grace is amazing. And I pray as we unpack this over the next few minutes, I pray that your hearts, for those of you who know Jesus, will will be refreshed. For those of you who don't know Jesus, I pray that you will encounter the wonder and reality and the glorious might of what grace is all about. Uh, After we finish our Galatians series next week, as uh, John uh, said, we're going to be having a Mission Sunday. We're going to be reflecting on the gospel, but we're going to be reflecting on the gospel being spread uh, both locally and cross-culturally, and we're going to be celebrating the gospel, and it's going to be a wonderful time. I'd encourage you to come along, and we'll be letting you know some things as well, what's going on some of our missionary families. Uh, But after that, we're going to be looking at a little letter that Paul's written again called Titus to a guy called Titus. Uh, It's a great pastoral letter. He's writing to a young leader. Uh, He's challenging this leader to uh, be focused on the centrality of the gospel. And what we want to unpack over that time is, well, the gospel, if it's so real and so relevant, how will it shape a community? What does it shape for someone who's thinking of being in church leadership? How does the gospel shape uh, discipleship? How does the gospel shape on a matter of things? So for the next few weeks, when we go into Titus, what's what we're going to do? We're going to look at how would, what would a gospel-centered community look like? Now, as we've been journeying through uh, Galatians, we've made something very clear, hopefully. You've been hearing this one drum that's constantly being beaten every Sunday, which is grace is amazing. Grace is wonderful, but not only that. See, grace is what sets us apart from any other religion that's out there. Any other religion... The Christian faith, the concept of grace is what sets us apart completely. Because grace reminds us (laughs) there's nothing you and I can do. It's all God's work through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, grace reminds us that you and I, we can keep trying to be good and trying to be good, but that won't really produce good fruit. Real, long-lasting fruit is produced when we rely on the Holy Spirit. And he produces that good fruit. See, some guys came along in the Galatian church, like we said over the last few weeks, and they were challenging this. They were saying, great, believe Jesus, but let's add some things. And ultimately, let's add some things to the gospel of grace. And so they were saying, ultimately, let's add what's called the Mosaic Law, a lot of the Old Testament that you have in your Bible. They were saying, let's add to it, to this grace. We want you to follow this. This will make you a good Christian. And we've been unpacking over the last few weeks, well, actually, we can't do that. (laughs) It's only possible through Jesus and in Jesus. And our Christian faith ultimately is a picture of wonderful, glorious surrender. So the Christian faith is a wonderful picture of surrender. It's a surrender to both God and His work through His Son, (laughs) but also a surrender and dependence on His Holy Spirit. And last week we asked the question, well, what would it look like to be a grace-based community? If this is true, if this is unpacked, and, and if this is going to affect our lives, what would it look like to be a grace-based community? And I hope you heard that last week, a grace-based community is grounded in grace, led by the Spirit, 
humble in its practice, invested in eternity. And Nathan just read for us the next section we're going to finish off this morning with. Paul's writing this letter and he's been uh, having a few, uh, maybe someone scribe it for him. And he says this interesting thing, see with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. And if you talk to my beautiful wife, sometimes I write her a card or a little note and it's quite an interesting uh, adventure for her because she opens it up and she knows it's from me because of my handwriting. It's really bad. It's almost like she has to get a dictionary out, a thesaurus out, get some language study books out to try to figure out what I'm writing, and she can pick some words. See, here in this letter, uh, Paul is now taking over to actually write physically himself. Now, there's been a lot of talk about what that means. Maybe he had, you know, he had an issue with his arm and he can't write, or maybe that was just part of the practice. He had a scribe write for him. Um, but I think in this last few sections we're really seeing this pastor's heart this leader's heart for this church so he wants to make something very clear to this church if they've missed everything (laughs) he wants to make them understand something very clearly now this group of people who've come along and said look yes jesus but let's add to this gospel well you know what do you want to know what their motivation is Their motivation has nothing to do with God and His glory. There's a different heart motivation. And in this beautiful little sentence, I think we're seeing a a wonderful reality of a pastor and a leader. See, on one hand, you have this church leader. It's like he's grabbing the keyboard off his personal assistant and saying, here, let, let me type for you. I'm going to put the caps lock on to make sure they say, this is me writing it. But not only that, I want them to get the emphasis of my final few sentences in this letter. He wants to make sure they hear that. And it's a wonderful contrast because here's this other bunch of leaders who've been um, pestering Paul, who've been uh, bringing this fake gospel into this church who at the end of the day are only motivated by themselves. See, what's motivating them to engage with this church to say you need to be really good Christians? Ultimately, it's for their own fame. It is for their own spiritual fame. It has nothing to do with God and His glory. And not only that, they're driven by fear. They don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be hassled because of their faith. They're ultimately deluded by this. See, in the verses that we've just read, in Paul's writing, I think he's writing, he's emphasizing, he's saying, listen, it is those who want to make good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised, that they may boast in your flesh. See, these, this group of people, they don't really care ultimately about the Galatian church. They care about their own reputation and ultimately what they are afraid of is they don't want to be persecuted. They don't want to be persecuted in following Jesus, the, the Messiah, the one who says, well, things have changed now. And not only that, they're putting this law on, they're saying you need to follow this Mosaic law. Paul's saying, listen, they can't actually even keep these standards themselves. They can't do it themselves. 
So this is at the heart, I think, when you unpack what legalism and adding to the gospel does. It's actually setting a standard up for someone. And often when we set up a standard, even our own selves, we might in different ways, we ultimately can't do it ourselves. It's like in the um, church I grew up with, which was a wonderful church. Uh, and I loved growing up there. But I did also have individuals who would come and tell me things like, hey, you need to read the Bible every day. Some would even say, you need to read the Bible sometimes morning, sometimes at night. Really need to meditate on these things. You're not doing it, you have to do it. Now, is it wrong to read the Bible? Not at all. I would never say that. It's a wonderful thing. You should do it. But see, this person was putting this thing on me and saying, you need to keep up to the standard. You have to stay up to the standard. You're not keeping up to the standard. That means you're not a good Christian. But if I turn around and said, hey, do you struggle with sin this week? Maybe you did. But you've set up a standard for yourself that you yourself probably can't do. And this is what Paul is saying. This group of guys, they're setting the law. They're setting this, um, this foundation. They can't actually keep up to it. They can't do it. So Paul actually says to him, listen, I want to show you what you should really ultimately boast in. And this is going to be the question I'm going to hopefully answer for us and ask the question even now, what is it that you boast in about your faith? When you think about the Christian faith, what do you boast in? Do you ultimately boast in your religious practices that you do? About how moral you are? You're not like those people. Maybe it's about someone who, if you're in ministry, that you boast a lot about your ministry. What are you boasting? I think even in this context in our Western culture, uh, I've spent a few time, a lot of time with church leaders in different uh, contexts, and often you hear them talk about, even myself, talking about, so what's going on in your church, man? Oh, well, yeah, you should see, man, Sundays is pretty packed, you know, we're putting chairs out and things are happening. We ourselves can get caught up in boasting peripheral things. Things at the end of the day don't matter. Now, don't get me wrong. We need to talk about those things. There's a healthy way of those, having those discussions. But if you boast in it, you miss out. And if you're going to serve, Paul also makes it very clear here what his heart is why he's serving. So if you're going to be serving, uh, this group, they were ultimately serving for the wrong reason. They were actually serving out of fear. So if we serve out of fear, ultimately what we're going to do is we're going to try to please everyone. Don't want to rock the boat. Want to keep it safe. And sometimes we might even serve out of fame, desire to say, hey, yeah, look what I've done. Look at all the things that I've achieved. So the question is, what do we boast in? What do we really want to boast in? And Paul says this interesting comment, because I find this quite fascinating. What does Paul boast in? Now, I want you to think about this, okay? This is the Apostle Paul. Last time I checked, I don't think there's anyone here who's written any part of the New Testament. Last time I checked, I'm pretty sure there's not many of you who've planted a lot of churches. Last time I checked, most of you have... I'm guessing there aren't many here who's been jailed because of their faith. I'm guessing most you haven't been shipwrecked because of your faith. And let alone you haven't written the letter of Galatians. This is a man who wrote Galatians who has unpacked some beautiful, glorious theology who's set a foundation for the Christian faith even until today. He has 
<laughs> you know, if you said to him, hey, Paul, can you send me your CV? Because uh, we're thinking about jo- getting you to join our pastoral staff team. His CV would be pretty amazing on paper. No. What does Paul, the Apostle Paul, has to boast about? He says, By far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Verse 16, And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. So this church was known for their religious work, it seems. It seems that someone, these group of guys who come in and say, add to the gospel, they are known for it. And, and it's something they're wanting to boast in. And ultimately, these other leaders are wanting to boast in their good works. And Paul's saying, you've missed out. That's not what you boast in. Do you, and he's saying to him, look, do you really want to know what you should boast in? What you should really be holding your head up high about with great joy? It has nothing to do with the peripheral stuff. The only thing you have to boast about ultimately should be what Paul is boasting about, which he says he has complete confidence in the cross of Jesus Christ. The cross that held the Savior. The cross that held his beaten and bruised and bloodied body hanging there. That's what he boasts in. A torture tool. Now, we live in 2014, we live in a sort of an evangelical world and, and a church world, and for us to think about the cross like this one right here, yeah, we know, we're cross people, we, we're Christians. Some of us wear a cross around our neck, it's not a, you know, we, we get it, should be, I know, both in the cross. But I want you to understand, this was the most ridiculous thing to hear for someone in that time. We've got a picture up here on the screen. Um, Jay will put it up for us. Thanks, buddy. So this is a, a little graffiti or, or art that was found in, in around the Greek time. It says, Below stands a man raising his hand in salute with the words, Aleximenos worships his God, scrawled in Greek. So there's a man standing there, looks like someone crucified, and the picture of that person's head is a horse. This is uh, found to say, this was the most ridiculous thing to consider, that you worship a God who died like a criminal on a cross. That is the most ridiculous thing to hear for anyone. So this church is listening in this context. All of a sudden they hear, I boast in the cross. And all of a sudden, they would have gone, wow, that's what we ought to boast in. So church, what are we boasting? What are you boasting when you think about your Christian faith? When you think about Christianity in general, what do you boast in? Uh, last week, I had, the, I had to spend some time looking at some uh, church websites and, um, to do some research. And one of the things I noticed, it's very easy to find out what a church boasts about by their website in uh, 2014, a day and age. Now, I don't know if you've gone to our website. You might try to figure out what we're boasting about. But see, when you walk through some of these websites, you see very clearly what they boast about. And one website I went to this church uh, was boasting about, uh, in summary it said, we have this great facility that we use on Sundays and we've got these rooms and this is what they were boasting about. They were boasting about the property that they have. Now, 
the church had a purpose for that, but as I was reflecting on it, as I was reflecting on this passage, it's interesting, the front and center, one of the most prominent moments you have to advertise about Jesus, they were boasting about the facilities. But Cambridge Gardens, we too are guilty of it. I've been reflecting on some of the conversations I've had with people, I've heard from people, we talk about often, what do we boast about when we think about our church? Oh, we're a great family church. You know, we've got a wonderful, great kids' ministry going on. You know, we've got this playgroup that runs during the week. A lot of non-Christian mums come to it. You know, we, we do Bible teaching on Sunday mornings. We've got youth. You should see how many youth come every Friday, the amount of kids. You should see on Sunday mornings, sometimes seats are filled out. We have to order chairs, new chairs for it, you know. Now, some of these things aren't bad things to talk about in a good way and it's, it's an evidence of God's work, I think. But if that's what we ultimately boast about, we're in trouble. So what is it we boast about? We might talk about our church and go, well, we talk about our property and look how big it is and how marvelous it is. You know, we've really got really good-looking pastors on our pastoral staff team. Church, we're all tempted to boast about everything else, ultimately except for Jesus himself. Church, at the end of the day, yeah, we can talk about those things and it's an evidence of God's work to some extent, but ultimately, the only thing we really have to boast about and really the only thing that we can take true confidence in is in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you know what? The cross of Jesus Christ, this is why the cross is both, and it's, it's, it's offensive. It's offensive to those who are non-religious because the cross of Jesus Christ, when you reflect on the cross, says there's only one way to God. It's exclusive. There is no other way. There's only one way to the creator of the universe. It is through his son, Jesus, who died on a cross. That is the only way. That's why it's offensive. But it's also offensive to those of us who are religious, see? Because the cross turns around and says to us, listen, all those good things that you're doing and you're thinking that somehow that will make you a better person and somehow it will eventually make you uh, have availability to a relationship with the creator of the universe, well, that doesn't work. Because the cross, you look at the cross and the cross goes, okay, all my good works amount to nothing. It's only one person's good work and that is our saviour, Jesus Christ. So that's what we ultimately should and ought to grow in boasting in. And this is why I think Paul says in these words that the world is crucified with me and I to the world. What he's saying in those few sentences is to say, this completely, this reality of the boasting of the cross shapes his entire life. What he's saying is that he's died to the world and that he's been crucified with Jesus on that cross. He's not saying he's being Jesus. What he's saying is when we die to ourselves. In our sin, we are being crucified with Jesus. The world, the sin, and all of its elements, all of it has been crucified onto that. And in light of that, we live. And this is why he talks about he lives. And what he means by that is he's living in the shadow of the cross, the after effects of the cross. And this is why he can boast. He can boast in the most weakest point of someone's life, their death. Because he realizes he can, through that, find life. Because he knows for him to live, 
He needs the empowerment of Jesus through his spirit. And I think this is why, if you read a lot of the letters that Paul writes, a lot of his ministry, you can read a lot about it in the book of Acts. He was not ashamed. He had nothing to lose. He actually was not defined by his ministry. He was not defined by his Bible knowledge. He was ultimately defined by the gospel. And this is why he can say he's been crucified. Now he lives. And I think this is why he makes it much more further clearer in verse 15 where he says, whether you're circumcised or not circumcised, that doesn't matter. So if there are people reading this and going or hearing it, they're going, well, okay, yeah, those circumcised people. All your religious things mean nothing, nil. They don't add anything to your faith. And not only that, the thought of thinking, well, that not being circumcised, that means that doesn't add to your faith either. See, what matters most is understanding the effects of the cross. When you've died, now you live. But now in light of that, of the cross, you are now a new creation. A new creation. That word new creation, the um, best way to put it is um, if you order, I don't, know, I don't know if you do these these days because you've got Kindle and all those other wonderful technology, but back in the day you used to order books from online and they used to come from places like Amazon and the really nice books are the ones that are leather bound. Really nice. And they come in the mail. First time you open it, it's crisp and clean. There's a little smell to it. Feels really nice. It's fresh. It's new. See, he's saying, listen, unlike your religious friends that you've been listening to who've been invading with this false gospel, who's been adding to the gospel, they actually provide, yeah, a newness. Look, if you do all these good works, you're really a good person. That's a newness. That's fake. The real newness, the new creation kind of newness, only comes in understanding there's only one thing you can boast in. And in light of that, you live. And this newness is not something that is just offered one time. It is something you live in light of and it should totally, completely overwhelm your whole life. The best way to put it is probably, I would put it in my language, is to say, if you realize this, it is making it affect your life to the point it marinades into your soul and it shapes all of you, everything about you. This idea about boasting in the cross and living in light of that. And this is why I think he says in the last few sections of his letters I've been meditating over the last few weeks, it affects everything. That includes ultimately your relationships. It affects the way that you engage with each other, with the world. That's what happens when the gospel starts taking shape in your life. And he finishes off with saying, which leads you experiencing peace. Now, in our day and age, in the Western culture, there's a lot often Christians, preachers might have been preached to you. Peace means that if you follow Jesus, you get lots of money, nothing will go wrong in your life, uh, everything will be perfect, everything will be happy, there won't be any suffering that you will get. Now, I would encourage you, if you believe that, take some time to have a cup of tea with someone at our church, and quickly you will find that such a thing does not exist. See, following Jesus does not mean that you are going to, everything is going to go fine for you. This is, remember the guy who's writing this. He's been jailed for his faith. He's been persecuted for his faith. 
Lots of bad stuff's going on in his life. But the peace that he's talking about is a peace of mind. And a peace of mind that is ultimately realizing what, I can't believe this, the creator of the universe has forgiven me. For all the things I've done and all the things I will do, he's forgiven me. That is the peace of mind, he's saying. This is what you'll experience if you rest in this reality. This is the peace that will come. Because you look at it in light of the cross and you realize there's been a mercy shown to you and that's the language here. This mercy is not talking just a kind-hearted mercy. This mercy is like saying, God's saying to you, listen, I love you, I've purchased you, I've paid for you through my son. I've made an agreement with you. And this means that no matter what you do, no matter where you go, I will still love you. My love for you does not change. I'll be merciful to you till your last day, till your final breath. I am merciful to you then and I will be merciful to you when I see you because my son has paid for you. That is the beauty and wonder of the cross. And it's all based on God and his character. It has nothing to do with you or me. It's all based on his God, God and his character. And this, he comes with this wonderful term called the Israel of God. See, in the context of Galatians, um, there was a group of guys, they were called the Judaizers. Uh, I don't know if I said that correctly, but ultimately what these um, leaders were doing was saying, hey, yes, God, Jesus, okay, Messiah, let's add some extra things, Mosaic law, this is how we'll ultimately mean that you are real, true Christians. We don't want you to just throw that away. We don't like also the idea that there are these non-Jewish people now coming into a relationship with, ah, God, we have been the God of Israel. God of Israel, the people of Israel. We are the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, Paul makes this interesting statement. Israel of God. (laughs) To a church that he's writing to. What he's ultimately saying here is, see, if you fully accept the cross and you live in the shadow of the cross, whether you're a Jewish person or whether if you're a non-Jewish person, you are in the family of God when you come into relationship with Him. Some use the language of grafted in. You're part of God's people now. You are the Israel of God, God's people. This is what happens when you put your trust in God. So you're no longer someone who looks at someone and goes, oh, he's a Greek. Oh, he's a Jew. Actually, no. That's a brother and sister in Christ. We're in the same family. If you want to use it, uh, in our terms, it would be someone who comes from an ex-Muslim background, comes to Christ, uh, comes into a relationship with Jesus. We don't look at them now and go, well, they're an ex-Muslim. We actually look at them and go, hey, that's a brother or a sister in Christ. They're part of my family. And for those of you who've been involved in cross-cultural mission, you understand this. Or you've been in any kind of mission context. When you go overseas uh, and you engage with other Christians from another denomination or uh, someone who uh, you're there to serve and you turn around to them and you don't look at them and go, oh, they're from India or they're from Vanuatu. Actually, this is my brother. This is my sister in Christ. We're part of the same family because Christ brings us into this family. See, in the Christian faith, there's no uh, room for race division. There's no room for ethnic division. Because in Christ, we're all family. And this is the effects of the cross. Yes, we get eternal life. 
Yes, we get relationship with Jesus. But when we come into contact with those who are from all different tribes and tongues, this is why Jesus tells us, go, go. Because we have the opportunity to bring people into the family and we all become this wonderful gospel, Christ-centered family from all around the world. And he concludes with these verses in verse 17 in light of that. From now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits, brothers. Amen. As we started the series, one of the things Nathan uh, uh, put forward is to say that we uh, believe this letter is probably one of the first letters, one of the epistles that's written. And if this is the one that was shaped a lot of the New Testament uh, letters that we have, I find it quite interesting. (laughs) Verse 17, you know why? It says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. I bear my body the marks of Jesus. Now, this is a man who has a right to say this, okay? This is a man, when he talks about the bearing the marks of Jesus, he's not actually talking about, uh, literally, he was crucified as such, and he was sort of beating himself up. This is talking about he's, he's, he's paid for his faith. He's been in jail for his faith, unlike these other guys who have done and none of that. Because his heart is not to please people, his heart is to please God. And he says... This interesting verse, it says, Let no one cause me trouble. If you have ever had a chance to read any of Paul's letters in a lot of the New Testament, he was constantly facing this. <laughs> For the rest of his life, I think probably till his last breath, he had to beat the same drum. Others would come along to reshape the gospel, add to the gospel, water it down, And Paul would beat the same drum. Christ crucified, the cross, grace, no additions to the gospel, none of it. Uh, Yesterday, if you watched the grand final like I did, um, if I mentioned a name by the name of Mike Brady, would that make sense to some of you? Some maybe? If I said to you, up there, Kazali, the song, most of you go, yeah, I got it, they sang it yesterday. See, this artist, he's probably written a few more than that one song. But he's always just known for that one song. They hire him to come and play it at the grand final. That's all he's known for. Church, you as Christians and as Canterbury Gardens, we will always be this one song church. Always. What song is that? Christ crucified, the gospel of Jesus. We will sing the song over and over again. That is what's going to be our song. That is our song for the rest of our lives till Jesus returns or calls us home. And so verse 18 says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you brothers in your spirit. Um, This cross here, uh, someone made it for uh, one of the things that we ran at our church. And over time, because we, we don't use it as often, and particularly in our tradition, we don't have these kind of elements here. But we, we put it away. It's up in the back near the exit sign, which is probably a bad idea. If we ever have a fire, I apologize if you're listening in. Uh, don't, don't get us in trouble. Um, but I think this is what happens for us. I think we ourselves forget the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ in our spirits. What we do is we tuck it away like this sort of, just, it's just 
wood being put away, but we just tuck it away. We forget about it. We bring it out on special occasions. We have lunch, dinner, maybe a Christmas or Easter. But if we take this letter seriously, it's always, all the time. The question I have to ask you this morning is, is this true for your spirit? Is this true for your spirit? Does the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ still consume your heart? Maybe as we've gone through this series, you've realized you accepted Jesus, you were overwhelmed by the grace at one point, but over time you started adding to the gospel. Maybe it was through moral works. Maybe that's what you're known for, being a good moral person. Maybe as you've been going through the series, you've realized, whoa, God, I've lost sight of the grace of God. This morning, would you turn back to that grace and ask Jesus to remind you of that grace again? Maybe you're someone who's grown up in this church. Maybe your parents have brought you here. Maybe you have been involved in church ministry here, even at Canterbury Gardens. Maybe uh, you know all the language, you know all the lingo, but at at the heart of it, in reality, Jesus has always been your friend, but he hasn't really been your Lord. He really has not taken full authority of your life. And you've tried to fill it up with other things. And the grace of God has not really captured your heart. You know what? This morning could be the morning that you turn around to Jesus and say, With Jesus, you are Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. And if you do believe that and you want to let that happen in your life, you can do that this morning. Ask Jesus to take his rightful place. And church, finally, as long as Canterbury Gardens meets together on a Sunday morning or in your small groups or even as you meet as families around your house, around youth groups and all these other things that we run as a church for the purpose of proclaiming Christ crucified, we will always boast about Jesus. And if you want to know what to pray for your leaders, pray that we will always do that. Pray that your leaders at Canary Gardens will always boast about Christ, the crucified one, and the effects of the gospel of grace to the Lord's work is done here in this place, but in the lives of the people who come. Church, I pray that you will hear that the gospel will always, always be preached at Canary Gardens, not just on those special evangelistic outreach events. The gospel will always be preached on Sunday mornings, we would encourage you to preach it to your family. We would encourage you to preach it to everyone around you. We want the gospel, the thought of Christ, the crucified one, who gave so much to be in relationship with you. And in light of that, through the power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that we would live, love, and serve. Let me pray for us. Lord, what a wonderful, glorious thought it is to consider that you knew that in 2014, you knew that in your providence that this passage, this book would impact the lives of people here. Lord, we pray that your spirit will continue to shape us to be a church that lives in light 
of the cross. And Jesus, I pray that you would be gracious to help us to constantly and continuously boast about you. We pray this in your name. Amen.